welcome to the RTG Dissect Digest, where the future leaders of nuclear policy will be covering this year's convening of the United Nations General Assembly First Committee on International Security and Disarmament. We'll be giving you an inside perspective into the conversations taking place among states and civil society and sharing our takes on the progress states are or aren't making on disarmament. Today, we'll be giving you a bit of a primer on First Committee for those who aren't familiar, and then we'll tackle some of the big headline issues of the First Committee. Later, we'll be joined by Christian Chiavanu, the Director of Reverse the Trend, Policy Coordinator at the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation, and the Advisor on Disarmament Issues to Kirbaz. This is the first episode of a new short series we're doing on the First Committee, so be sure to look out for more from us in the weeks to come, including our conversations with guest experts. The First Committee on International Security and Disarmament, also called the Disarmament and International Security Committee, or DISEC, or simply First Committee, is a subsidiary to the General Assembly, which is one of the six main organs of the UN, and the only one that is run on a democratic basis, as all 193 member states of the UN get a vote and only one vote, provided that a state isn't more than two years behind on its UN dues. And it isn't always the case that states are up to date on their dues. The US incited controversy in the 90s when it withheld dues and almost lost its vote, Iran lost its vote for a time in 2021 when it fell behind on dues, which it blamed on U.S. sanctions. The Charter of the U.N. vests the General Assembly with the power to discuss anything within the scope of the Charter and pass resolutions, to make budgetary decisions, and to appoint the non-permanent members to the Security Council, among other things. The General Assembly meets annually in New York, starting with a general debate followed by committee meetings. There are six committees, including the First Committee, the others deal with global economic and financial issues, human rights and humanitarian issues, decolonization and peacekeeping, UN administration and budget, and international law and legal issues. There are seven themes that First Committee is tasked with. Nuclear weapons, other weapons of mass destruction, disarmament issues pertaining to outer space, conventional weapons, regional disarmament and security, other disarmament measures, and disarmament machinery. At RTT, we're all about nuclear disarmament, but as far as First Committee is concerned, disarmament here also refers to other categories of weapons and militarism more generally in addition to and intersecting with nuclear weapons, like biological and chemical weapons, cyber attacks, cluster munitions, small and light weapons, and anti-personnel landmines. This year's first committee meeting is taking place against the backdrop of Russia's illegal war of aggression on Ukraine and its nuclear escalations, as well as the DPRK's recent launch of a missile over Japan and fears that it will soon conduct a seventh nuclear test. In continued tensions between the U.S. and Iran, and between Israel and a majority of states in the Middle East, who are upset over its ongoing undeclared nuclear program. At the same time, we find ourselves at a real crossroads for the future of nuclear disarmament. Those of you who tuned into RTT RevCon Recap remember that the 10th Non-Proliferation Treaty Review Conference held at the UN in New York this August failed to reach consensus on a final outcome document after Russia obstructed the document's adoption. Not only this, but the draft document that states were voting on was itself pretty uninspired, 
despite the better efforts of a core group of states parties to the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, who pushed for stronger humanitarian language and concrete timelines and benchmarks for disarmament. Pretty frequently, states will reference their disappointment of the recent IPT Review Conference's failure. Shameless plug here, we have a few different episodes on this conference that has greatly impacted the development of First Committee, and so if you haven't already, be sure to give those episodes a listen. Regardless, it is still commonly referenced that Russia is the sole state to block a consensus of a, on a final outcome document, and so I'm curious to what your guys' opinions are on what makes the First Committee a different platform than the NPT's review conference to address nuclear disarmament. I would say that the behavior and rhetoric of the nuclear weapon states and their allies at RevCon was profoundly disappointing and was pretty revelatory of their concerted interest in maintaining the nuclear status quo, characterized by global insecurity, unaccountability, militarism, and contempt for humanitarian principles, even in the face of the nuclear lesson the world has learned from the war in Ukraine which is that nuclear weapons do not make the world safer, but make conflicts worse uh, and harder to solve and we can even start wars. This is a moment in time when we have to think about how we can make real progress on disarmament outside of conservative frameworks like the NPT and the limitations placed on them by nuclear weapon states and their allies, which makes First Committee a forum with a lot of opportunity because this is a setting where all relevant treaties on disarmament can be placed in conversations with one another. Whereas a lot of the debate at RevCon concerning the TPNW could only go so far as the relevance and compatibility of the TPNW with the NPT. At First Committee, states can and do talk about frameworks for disarmament beyond the limited capacity of the NPT. So in terms of the first committee, this year we've seen that in the thematic discussion or thematic cluster on nuclear weapons, many states have talked about the first meeting of state parties that happened of the TPNW that occurred in June of this year and how the TPNW complements the NPT. We also, in the case of um, Permanent Mission of Kiribati, Ambassador Sito talked about nuclear justice. And in fact, he delivered a joint statement with Kazakhstan on the importance of providing international assistance and cooperation, as well as, you know, environmental remediation to those who have suffered and to the environments that have been contaminated by nuclear weapons. That was delivered, and he gave a very, very strong remarks. He even highlighted that, you know, he urged the states to support the TPNW and contended that in order that you would have that he basically said that it would be inhuman not to support the TPMW. So he said if they're quote if they're if you're a human being then you should support the TPMW end quote. And that was very impactful and many, many states resonated to those comments. 
Now, turning to another resolution, this year there's a resolution that being tabled um, by Japan on nuclear disarmament. And there was a um, push by a few states to include victim assistance and environmental mediation in that you know, resolution, particularly you know, trying to really help the victims who have suffered from nuclear tests and the use of nuclear weapons. Unfortunately, the, um, the Japanese chose not to include that in their resolution. And it's, it's hard because that resolution really, the one that's being tabled by Japan, addresses a lot of concerns from the NPT Review Conference. And for some reason, they didn't want, for political reasons, they chose not to um, incorporate references to the survivors of nuclear testing and use of nuclear weapons. But there is a paragraph in the resolution on the TPNW, just a factual reference that TPNW first nuclear state parties took place. So it'll be interesting to see how states vote on that and how states, you know, what they are, their um, comments will be doing the excavation of the vote. So you've talked a little bit about uh, some of the resolutions that have been So I'm hoping that a large number of states will vote in favor of L-17, which is the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Um, already we've seen a large number of states co-sponsor it, and there's now a push for more states, especially from the Pacific region, to join on board and express their support for this resolution. And it's going to be very important that a large number of states express their support because we just had the first meeting of state parties, so it's an indicator of how the states feel about the TPNW and where they are in this process. And with that, thank you so much to Christian for coming on the show, and thank you to everyone who has tuned in to this first episode of RTT Digest. And be sure to look out for more episodes in the near future as we continue unpacking the events and conversations taking place in our community at the end of this So we've covered a bit of the relevance of the TPNW and NPT to conversations that are taking place at First Committee, but let's talk about some of the other disarmament treaties that are coming up at First Committee. So a very important um, potential treaty, I guess we could say, is the proposal of a nuclear weapons-free zone in the Middle East. Um, and so the unfulfilled promise of a Middle Eastern nuclear weapons-free zone has been a hot spot of contention with nations like Iran, Syria, Israel, and Palestine, among others, making pretty consistent references to the 1995 conference where this was first brought up. On the other hand, regional bodies like OpenAL remind us of their success with nuclear weapons-free zones as a result of the Tateroko Treaty, a standout quote for me being, when Brazil, representing the regional body of OpenAL, made it a point to remind the other nations that not only has the Tateroko Treaty greatly benefited the nation's party to the treaty, but they also said it was a great service to humankind in the generations to come. 
Uh, just in case, if you don't know, the Beperoco Treaty is the one that establishes a nuclear weapons-free zone in Latin America and the Caribbean, and is often referenced as one of the most successful examples of nuclear disarmament for the rest of the world, and is often referenced as a model for other regions to um, adopt as an effective nuclear disarmament measure. A lot of the discussion around nuclear weapons-free zones, though, in the Middle East at least, surrounds the contentious topic of Israeli nuclear development. In the first committee this year, you can probably expect a few strange exchanges between the likes of Iran, Syria, Israel, and Palestine, and the conversation usually goes like this. Iran and Syria condemn Israel's hostility and the development of weapons of mass destruction that, quote, threaten the peace and security of the entire region. And Israel is likely to respond with accusations of an unreported nuclear development program in Syria and categorize Iran as the primary state sponsoring terrorism, and that is an actual quote from yesterday's first committee session. At the end of the day, though, a nuclear weapons-free zone has to be negotiated regionally, and if it will ever be successful, both Iran and Israel, among others, will have to make serious concessions about their nuclear development programs and make a renewed commitment to nuclear disarmament as a whole.